Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let us pray. And here, God, we see the second part of Christ's admonition as we respect to using the traditions of men, not only against the worship of God, as we saw earlier, but here against the second table, specifically uh, the root of the second table, the fifth commandment of family. And so, Lord, we see thus Christ protecting that commandment from the abuse that these men would use, somehow the first table against the second table. Help us, God, to be encouraged and instructed, I pray, and therefore edified of the sin of neglecting natural affections. In your name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 7 is often known as a proof text for the second commandment, that is about worshiping and honoring God and how it must be done on his terms and not by the traditions of men. No images, no light shows, not even the simple washing of hands, that's what he was talking about, right, should be added as an element of worshiping God, not just in formal worship, but in everyday life. You don't come to God in your own terms. You pray to him. You don't pray to images in worship or outside of worship. It doesn't matter. And same with the washing of hands. They made it somehow special before God, and they were special before God, and thus it's a traditional text about the second commandment. But this chapter also shows, as we see here in verses 9 and following, Christ continues to attack the traditions of men, not just against the first table, but also against the second table of God's law. He shows how men use made-up laws to work around the second table, this fifth commandment in particular. Christ was attacking the pharisaical misuse of God's law. They claim that if they make their money or resources or typically land, that they could have otherwise been given to the parents in their time of need as a gift instead to God or Korban. In other words, they falsely pitted the first and second commandment. It's a gift to God. You can give free will offerings even today, right? Nothing's stopping you. They pitted the first and second commandment against the fifth by claiming they could take what they had that they give to their parents and give it a gift to God instead, and so not to have to use it for their parents, and thus making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, annulling in effect by practice God's command to take care of your parents. Christ says, away with such sophomoric rationalizations, which is essentially what they are doing. Thus, the, he highlights how important the fifth commandment is in comparison to man-made traditions even ones that invoke the first or second commandment. But what is the first, or the fifth, excuse me, commandment about here? Here, the evil tradition was attacking an important foundation of that commandment, the natural affection between a child and a parent. It's very explicit. You and your parents. You've made up this tradition. You can bypass that requirement. Dodging the responsibility, they undermine the native love within the family. So let's learn about the importance of natural affections or natural love within the family and those close to us. Natural affections in the fifth commandment, the first point. Natural affections is affections for those near you, especially kin and family. 
uh, natural in the sense of it's built into creation. Everyone has it. You don't have to have, be a Christian to have it. We do have something different with respect to love, like agape love, the love of Christ, that the world doesn't have. That's true. But we have other loves that the world also has because what? We too are human. When you're born again, you don't become less human. <laughs> you still have human responsibilities. Even if your parents are unbeliever, you must do what you can to take care of them in their old age. Simple as. And so this natural affection is built into creation such that everyone has and knows these things. And We see this in the higher order of animals. They take care of their young, and unbelievers take care of their young as well. The young take care of their parents for thousands of years in all kinds of societies, even when they made excuses for it, as we see the Pharisees here do it. And, of course, the Pharisees, in their case, are rich and get away with it in many regards. But it was still a social expectation in all these societies. Romans 1.31, a long list of sins we see there in Romans 1, where he tells us the whole world, everyone knows there is a God, there are no atheists. But they suppress that truth, that knowledge in themselves. And he gives a list at the end of that chapter of various sins of which they make excuses for one another for these sins. Because they know they have to make excuses because they know right and wrong. And excuses to rationalize that which you did. Why would you rationalize if you didn't think it was wrong or right? You know right and wrong. Their own rationalizations condemn them. And in part of that list is this interesting word. Without natural affection. There's one translation. Which, when you dig into that word, they understood it 400 years ago when they translated it that way, is especially towards those in your family or your in-group. Therefore, storge, which is that word, is actually an old English word. It's still there in the Collins Dictionary. Go look it up online. S-T-O-R-G-E. I didn't know. It's right from the Greek word. You're, you're speaking Greek, brothers and sisters. Didn't know it. So the English took the Greek word, transliterated is the word we use, the, the, the technical term we use, and they used it for a while, but it just died away. It's helpful because we have a problem in English with the word love, don't we? We only have one word for love. <laughs> I love my dog. I love my family. I love my car. I love my church. Dude, you're weird. No, we, we mean something different in every case, don't we? We have love. But we don't have another word other than love. But here we have another word for love of those close to us. Storgi. Natural affection. The Old Testament Jews had this problem of without natural affection. And I'll remind you of my series on Micah in which they attacked their own people, especially those in the middle class, and devoured them and ate up their bones, as the text tells us, economically. They hated their own. They had no natural affection. Storgi is but another word for ordered love. I did a little series on what is love, who you're supposed to love, and the like, and supernatural love. Uh, The description of it typically is called ordered love. That is, love in a proper prioritization. And this is clearly here in the Bible in Galatians 6.10, for example. Therefore, as we have opportunities, right into the Christians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. And people love that, especially people who want your money. Especially, Paul says, to those who are of the household of faith. There's a priority. Yes, we're supposed to be loving in a broad sense, to everyone, not to be a jerk on purpose and the like. It might be accidental. 
But he says, especially the household of faith. If you have to choose between the two of them, and I tell you, you do have to choose. It happens. Resources are limited. Time is limited. Especially the household of faith. That's who you're going to choose between the two if the rubber hits the road. Paul tells us that very explicitly. Paul assumes and acts upon what is called ordered or hierarchical love. 1 Timothy 5.8 is another one. Not as obvious, but I hope you see it when I read it. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty strong language. He's saying, he doesn't say that with others. If you don't you know, love random strangers, be, do good to all men, he doesn't say, therefore you're an unbeliever. You may say you're in sin. But he says, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't take care of your family, especially those of your household. Paul condemns individuals who do not take care of their own. He says there, who do not provide for his own. Own what? He doesn't, he doesn't say, but he says, especially of the household. So there's an own parentheses, right? That's how we talk often. There's an applied own, own of what? It's something broader than the idea of a household, isn't it? Because he just specifies household with the same word, especially. Especially the household. So it's a broader category with a small category called household. So it's something larger than a household. Whatever that's called, some translations use something different. They add the idea of what the ownership is. My point being, you have people close to you, then you have people even especially close to you. And that's your household. That's natural affection or storge. You ought to have that, not the opposite, which is a storge in Romans one thirty one, or without, as we all know, the prefix there, without natural affection, which is a sin. So you have an order prioritization. Take care of your own, but especially take care of those of your own household. Uh, be loving to all, but especially to the household of faith. We do this all the time. We know this. This is how God created us. It's assumed in the Bible, Zechariah 7, 13 through 14. There's a text you can look up later. I preached on that as well, Zechariah 7, 13 to 14, where they didn't love their brethren. And God was especially angry about that. We all know this when we talk about, how dare you? Would you talk that way to your mother? Why do we say that? As opposed to, would you talk that way to some random degenerate stranger down the street who's selling children? See the difference? There's obviously a difference. Sure, that guy right there on my left hand, the degenerate, uh, you might not go out of the way to smack him in the head, so you're being loving in that sense, and you may say yes, sir, or something like that to them, but that's not the same thing as how you would treat your mother, and it better not be the same thing. But our society's forgotten all about that. They're destroying this, what we call natural affections. Now, I want to note something. Of course, people will be quick to defend what we have today, the, de- the degeneration of natural love to those especially close to us, by calling it jingoism or hatred of others because they like what they have, which is not taking care of those close to them and their family and the like. And it's certainly not what's being taught here in the Bible. Paul does not doing that. I'm not arguing for that. We know in the Old Testament, for example, they were clearly commanded by God to be in the land, to take care of their own. They were given legal rights other people weren't given. Would you call them hateful towards the rest of the world? Would you say God gave them hateful laws? Would a Christian actually believe God gave them hateful laws in the Old Testament? Of course not. And yet the laws distinguished them. And they were careful, of course, not to abuse the alien or the stranger. This is not, not always helpful, of course. There's two actual different words there in Hebrew. 
An alien is those living among others who are not blood relatives, relatives, blood relation. That's what that word uh, means there. And, and of course, they were given some rights, but they also had what? Obligations to society if they're going to live among the Jews of old, the Old Testament church, who did not have hateful laws, I would argue. The Bible makes very clear. They still had obligations to take part in Jewish ceremonial worship, reading of the law, submission to the law, Sabbath law, and even fidelity to the Lord. Even though they were strangers. And of course, Paul and Christ, I talked about this earlier in Mark, where Christ goes back to his people. His love for the Jews and so does Paul, Romans 9, 3, love of his countrymen. For I could wish that I myself were cursed for Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. He had a special zeal for them. Are you going to say Paul hates the world? Who would actually believe that? So you have ordered love. All this points to something called ordered love, a prioritization of your affections, of even your time and effort, of course. Now, it's the basis, I would argue, of the fifth commandment. Because the fifth commandment is what? Honor your father and your mother. Who are they? They are the ones who birthed you, your mother especially. But they are the biological root of who you are. And you are raised in this environment. That's what Storgi is, comes from. It's especially your household, especially your family, especially those close to you. You have a natural affection. You can't help but have an affection. Even with those who are jerks in your family, you're like, I gotta, I gotta deal with the jerks in my family. I gotta take care of them, especially if they're parents or parents of the children. I mean, when you're a baby, you're a jerk all the time, it seems like. When you're a mom, you're like, quit waking me up at 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning. What's your problem, kid? But you love them. God instilled that natural love. And I, I don't have to point out to you, obviously, how much our state right now and other places hate that and want to murder babies. You're such an inconvenience. And so they twist that natural affection to be selfishness. And so the family, as we know, is the most basic social unit. And what's the glue that holds the family together? Natural Love, brothers and sisters. That's Storgi. Charity, instruction of life, discipline, all begin in the home. The home is a small church. The home is a small society. The home has a small government. And children grow up understanding this is how the real world is going to be like, one way or the other. The fifth is the moral basis of all human interrelations, as we know. Neighborhoods exist of collection of families. Businesses are people who are heads of family or parts of family. Clubs deal with individuals of family because individuals are not individuals, right? The libertarian lie that we're just all individuals. No, you're a part of a community of family first. Individuals in community. Dash, dash, that like one word. And so the fifth commandment is the basis of all things human. And natural affections is the basis of that basis. Or the glue, perhaps the better metaphor, that holds it all together. At the broadest level, of course, natural love includes all of humanity. Because we are naturally related as all fellow humans through Noah and Adam. And this is why we eschew or hate and flee from wars across the world. I've never met these people, but I don't want them dying. Do you? And so we hate war. Based on this natural affection, I never met the people. I don't hang around with them. They're far away from me. If you have concentric circles, the smaller circles, you and your immediate family, your extended family, uh, those related to you beyond that, your community and the like, they're way out here on the, on the preface, uh, on the corners and the edges of the circles. But because God has instilled in us that 
we're all human, and they're like me. They look like me. They have a lot of similar reactions to life in me. They hate pain. They, I don't want them to die. That's how God has designed it. And so we don't want to do unto others or have them unto themselves what we would want unto ourselves or the golden rule. But at the same time, we don't prioritize strangers over home and hearth. We shouldn't. Natural affections and the commandments of men. So here we have the twisting of natural love towards one another. And the second point I have, specifically here in Mark 7, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me, whatever you could have gotten, usually, as I said again, from the lands that they could have sold or used for their parents, they would dedicate to God and just sit there, of course. Is korban, that is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. You can't use that land, you can't touch it, or the, or the monies, or whatever happens to be that you abracadabra turn into a gift to God. And thus making the word of God of no effect or null through your traditions. You don't have to do your responsibility. You've dodged the bullet. And as we see here, they are pitting the first commandment implicitly, because what? It's in the name of God. That's the first commandment, isn't it? Your thoughts, your affections, your fear, the things you do in life, your dedication, your motivation is all in the first commandment. It's about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're saying, in the name of God, I'm taking this gift and giving it to him and not my parents. And so you see the pitting, right? Contrasting or the battle they're putting between the first and the fifth, or rather they're saying the first as they are using it, trumps and triumphs over and annuls the fifth commandment. It sounds super holy, brothers and sisters. I'm so dedicated to God. I'm giving all my land to my to my God and the church. Christ is like, no. No, no, no. They dodge the plain law of God or the black letter of God when he says you're supposed to take care of your parents. Those close to you especially, of course. So what I'm saying, of course, is not just narrowly only your parents. But again, those close to you. And today, I have uh, here three examples. I have many examples, but I wanted to pick them carefully uh, here, I hope to make it clear to us, of dodging natural affection. Now, the examples I give here, uh, I'm not trying to impugn the motives of people who think this way or do these things. It could be for other reasons. We know in this case, Paul, uh, Christ says very clearly, the people honors me with their lips, verse 6, but their hearts are far from me. It's a game to them. And I don't think it's a game for a lot of people. I think they're just poorly instructed. So I want to make that clear. The first one is, where everyday pastors, like me, uh, are told to sacrifice for family time, sacrifice your family for the gospel, to evangelize, to go out there to dangerous places, for example, that their families end up being neglected because, well, in real life, you literally have to spend time with your family. You can't just not spend time with your family and say, I'm doing it for God's work. You have to slow down some time and spend time with your family because pastors who are married have families. They have responsibilities to their family, devotionals, times for instruction, and the like. And saying, I'm doing the Lord's work to dodge your responsibilities at home, not going to wash. See that? And there have been people who have taught this. I heard about this from the seminaries. They teach their people, you must be willing to sacrifice family time. And they gave not just a... A general example, yeah, you've got a job and you might be called at night sometimes. Sure, these things happen, but they're like, no, you've got to go to these dangerous situations because you've got to bring the gospel to the world. I guess Paul failed that because he went over a basket 
and a basket over a wall to avoid dying, avoid dangerous situations. So it's not being super holy. <laughs> One who rules his own house well, having his children's submission with all reverence can't happen if they never see their father. Many Christian parachurches, another example, throw money at those who try, uh, who hate them and want to take their money and use it against them and against the church, for example. Samaritan Purse is a good example. It was public, so I'm going to use their name. Uh, during uh, the COVID debacle of 2020, uh, they went to New York and set up a bunch of tents. You remember that? To give out shots. You guys remember that? Okay. Well, now you do. I'm telling you it happened. You can look it up. And they were promptly ridiculed for not being loving enough to the gay community. We don't want your stinking shots if you don't love us enough to affirm us and our debauchery. Why? Just saw that and like, you didn't see that coming? But that's their MO, a lot of these organizations, unfortunately. Throw money instead of to poor Christians in Appalachians, for one example. To random people who hate them, to say, hey, it's the love of Christ. And in fact, one of the news summaries was, no, we don't, we don't hate you. Please, please don't be angry at us. What? Take that money and help those, especially the household of faith. We have lots of problems, brothers and sisters. A lot of people who need help, not just in our church. So I think that is a very obvious example. Third one, some churches dedicate monies uh, to the homeless in the church, on the streets, excuse me, in the church, that's good. But on the streets, again, random strangers, uh, maybe they don't hate you, maybe not, doesn't really matter in this case, because they claim they're fulfilling the commandment to love strangers. And yet their own members, so I'm making a careful distinction here, their own members need help and support. So it's a variation of the parachurch one. Now it's churches doing it in the name of Christ. When they have all, their own poor people or counseling, I remember running across this. Well, we're not going to give you counseling. And if we do give you counseling, it's going to cost money. What? To their own church members. Remember that very clearly. Remember that? I'm like, I'm like, what kind of a church is this? Was this a business? What kind of love is that? Especially the household of faith. It happens, brothers and sisters. It's, it's astounding. And so what they're doing here in the case of the church or the parachurch is using the Great Commission as a trump card. You see that? Using the Great Commission as a trump card. To dodge, and I don't think, again, they're, they're thinking I'm dodging these things the way the Pharisees are. They're misinformed. They're just simply misinformed, and I think it's been a problem. We have lots of funds we could use for the church, for poor Christians, our kids going to school. (laughs) That would be great, wouldn't it? And they throw it instead into these problems, and the unbelievers are like, thanks, I hate you, I'll take your money, I'm out of here. They're not growing that way, they're throwing money away often, it seems to me. And so these are examples, and there's many others like this, uh, I think we can add. Now, natural affections in everyday life, the third point, This is what it should be like, in other words. Family. Proverbs 13.22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of sinners is stored up for the righteous. So you only have so much time and money, as you know, and resources. Do you give most of it to the church? You say, you know, you know you're on your own, kids. Because the church, dude, that's the first commandment, right? Or at least it's part of it. That is God's works and words. The third commandment. The things of creation that he created, he created the church. Shouldn't I be dedicated to God and to his church? So you're on your own, kids. You don't need an inheritance. 
Now, no one's really done that I know of. I'm sure variations of it do exist, although with different rational, rationalizations out of anger or pettiness. But they're wrong, whatever the reason. The church is not primary in that sense into your life. You give what you have, the excess and the etc., the inheritance to your children and your children's children, the best you can, of course. And it's the balance, as we know, of some of that will be for the church. You got some of what you have has to go to the church. I know this, but I'm talking about people who put it out of whack, out of proportion, out of balance. And one of the excuses they use is it's God, it's the church, it's the Great Commission, whatever. Never an excuse to violate what you're called to do and your responsibility. Here, in particular, the fifth commandment. And take care of your family. Your disposable income and the like, the long hours that you work, are for whom? Well, pretty much for your family. Pretty much for your family. The bulk of it. And no one thinks somehow you hate the church because of that. At least I don't. I expect that. That's perfectly normal and natural. All that effort, all that time, all the money goes to mostly your family, the vast majority to your family, and that's good. The blessings in Proverbs are often about the family. Proverbs 17.6, for example, Children's children are a crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. So there you have a flip side, the reciprocal relationship we call it, right? A to B and B back to A are parents to children and children to parents. Of The blessings of having kids and the blessings of having aged men or fathers who, of course, uh, presumably are godly and giving you much instruction and help. And there are a number of Proverbs as well about the curses upon those who don't take the family seriously and hate their parents. Because natural affections, again, are the glue that holds society together for good or for ill if you use it wrongly. Friends, another circle. I'm going the concentric circles of those close to you especially. And here we have friends. Uh, often, most are, again, uh, most of our time is spent with at the house with your family, with your spouse, with your kids. And your friends, of course, if you have a good friend, recognizes that. That's a priority. They're not going to be angry at you. Why aren't you spending more time with me? That may be the case if your friends had never spent time with them or whatever. That that certainly does happen. But to, again, prioritize, prioritization is not wrong. It should be done. We do spend time with our friends. We have, in fact, a circle of friends, a small circle, a broader circle, and the like. Close friends, distant friends, acquaintances. We all know this. And therefore, our time and our efforts are spent in proportion to how close they are to us, relationally. And that's how it's supposed to be under ordinary conditions. And how we should, in other words, have that as a goal and an effort that we can do as best we can. It's good and natural. Community. Now, if we were in the 50s, is the best example I can think of where community affection, storge on a larger scale, as it were, would be more tangible you're more comfortable with your neighbors, you're all on the same kind of page, all your kids go to the same school. We don't have that now. It's very much fractured, as we know. And so we're realistic. I think we need to be realistic about this and not abuse this idea of love, this kind of love I'm talking about. We don't want our children around bad influence. There's a lot more of that, unfortunately. Especially today, with respect to Internet garbage and its effects, your neighbor kid could have a phone with access to the Internet, and that's the end of it. That's the end of it for your kid. I don't think I need to explain that to the adults. Predators, again, on the Internet, social media, pretending to be friendly, even neighbors sometimes. 
And as best you can, of course, you can still show some kind of love to them. Be cordial, be helpful. I mentioned this before. You have a fence problem. It's really their, your neighbor's problem. He's angry about it. Go ahead and fix it. Take the money out of your back pocket and fix it. Because, you, you know, good fences keep good neighbors. Mend those fences, even if it's out of your own back pocket. That's a form of love to them. Although they're in the wrong and you're in the right, you're not going to go to court over it. You shouldn't. Unless, of course, it's life-threatening or you're losing all your income or something. And so that's ways in which we can show some kind of natural affection, natural compassion, another way of looking at it, natural compassion to those who are near us in our community. The state and nation, lastly. The state and nation, lastly. Uh, on a the positive way of looking at it is that they are called, with respect to the people under them, our magistrates, our governor, our mayor, our president, the Supreme Court, to help us, to be our advocate, to be there to maintain a good society for not ourselves, but for our children and our children's children. Because we can't control enough of the laws and society to guarantee what it's going to be like for our kids and our grandkids. But they have that power in a way we don't, don't, right? They pass the laws, they make the enforcements, they give the resources and the like. And so the state should prioritize their own people above others. That would seem to be obvious, but it's not a problem. But it is not obvious anymore. And it is a problem these days, unfortunately, where our resources, either at the city or community levels, instead of being used 90% or whatever number you think is appropriate, it's going to be a high number, I would argue, for their own people, instead, again, given to random strangers halfway across the world. We see this recently in a debacle over halfway across the world. And our own people have a hard time, like veterans, on the street and the like. In fact, I'm reminded in doing my research for the conference Friday of Cher. Anybody remember who Cher is under the age 30? <laughs> uh, she's a performer. And she was complaining about San Francisco throwing money to strangers instead of helping their own vets. And I was like, wow, see, that's Storgi. There's a prioritization. You don't have so much resources, almost so much money to help their own people. In this case, the city of San Francisco. And I think many of us know how bad that place is. But instead, we waste our money on foreign policy in the name of what? Saving democracy. And now we know what kind of democracy they want to save, the one that reinforces what Colorado and California want. So I don't think I need to specify what that is anymore. Christ came to save us, brothers and sisters. And in him saving us, he came to instruct us as a prophet. And that's what he does here in Mark 7. To the Pharisees and to us to learn the lesson that the Pharisees did not learn, which is you should not pit the first table against the second in this manner. It's not like God's telling you to worship your parents. Of course you don't do that. That would be the wrong kind of using the fifth commandment, and that would violate the first commandment. But here, instead, they take these, the word I would use, free will offerings. You don't have to make a korban, but they want to make a korban. It happened to be very convenient for them. They don't have to give the money or the resources or the land to their parents. Oops. Sorry. And not to do the equivalent today. And I give you some examples, both positive and negative. Christ is teaching them, and he's teaching us that natural love and affections, as part of the fifth commandment, should be upheld and used aright. It shouldn't be subservient to, quote, being more godly the way the Pharisees were arguing. Rather, 
It should be rightly ordering the priorities of love. Christ instructs us here to keep loving our parents and others close to us while loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us pray.